like I wouldn't train every day in the house. So it's it's important to mix it up. You know, people think that if you're running a road race and it's flat and it's all flat running you should be doing. Um, you know, you gotta mix it up, you gotta put in hills and in summer if it's all hill running you're doing, you gotta also do the flat speed stuff. So I never do too much of one thing and I think that's helps stave off any injury. Welcome to No Finish Line, a podcast with John O'Regan, sponsored by Great Outdoors Dublin. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Finish Line podcast featuring athlete interviews and discussion on running, training, travelling and adventure and I'm your host John O'Regan and in this episode I'm joined by Sean Stewart. Sean is a multi-sport athlete currently competing in single and multi-day adventure races and trail running races throughout Ireland and internationally. In 2018 Sean was crowned the National Adventure Race Champion with a string of victories in the Irish Adventure Race Series. Alongside these races, Sean also takes on personal adventures in cold and mountainous regions. Sean, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, John. Uh, good, good to chat to you, finally. Sean, what is adventure racing? I suppose you need to look at it in two ways. There's there's adventure racing and there's multi-sport racing, so there's a bit of a difference in them, I guess. Um, I suppose we've got the terms a little bit mixed up here in Ireland, I guess. Um, what we consider adventure racing would be called multi-sport racing elsewhere. Um so the the races that we would do here that people are familiar with, I suppose the the Quest races and Gale Force and, and those, um, they they're basically multi sport races which consist of um, maybe anywhere from cycling, running, uh, mostly trail running off off road and on mountains, and there's generally a kayak section in it as well. But there's there's no navigation really um, involved, and I suppose that's where adventure racing is, is different. Um, you know, and it's it's generally self-navigated, and you're normally a team of four, um, so a mixed team of four. So there's a bit of a difference there, but um, yeah, I, I, I take part in both really. And as well as the adventure race, you do a lot of other challenges, and there's one in particular that I'm interested in was the High Peaks Challenge that you did back in 2017, which was climbing to the highest point in every county in Ireland in the shortest yeah. possible time and the challenge at one stage was to do it in under 100 hours what yeah. time was it you did it in? Uh, I think it was 60 hours 60 hours yeah uh, so you went out yeah, to beat right yeah you went out to beat the previous fastest known time which was 87 hours 50 minutes mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. previous to that the record was 96 hours and did you know that yeah. I actually held the record when it was 96 hours Oh really? Right, right. I was, I wasn't, uh, wasn't aware of that because I, I had known. Again, it was me with, with a team, and there recently, uh, I actually think it was last year, myself and one or two guys who had been on that challenge were talking about doing it again, and we yeah. were all on for it. We had a route kind of planned out because we knew that when we did it, we got caught out with the traffic in Cork going through the Jack Lynch yeah. tunnel after coming from Knockboy and then when we got to Logan Aquila we were doing it from the Glen of Amal side and there was yeah. army practice going on so we couldn't get to Logan Aquila <laughs> so we lost some time and we were thinking okay. well if we change the route around a little bit we should be able to get it close to 90 between 85 and 90 hours and then when I'd seen what the record then was I just thought yeah. no forget about it I said, if we're going to do it, yeah, I said, if we're going to do it, we're going to have to just do it as a group, maybe have a bit of a charity element into it and do it for a bit of fun. But we said there was no way yeah. we were going to do 60 hours. And I just noticed you, you took a very interesting route 
and you did something really clever, which was to take a boat from uh, what's it called, mm. Killery Fjord. Yeah, across Killery Fjord. Yeah, I, I suppose the, the challenge came about really um, myself and um, good friend Lone Nofaro from Galway. Um, we would have competed against each other for years, and then we. We actually raced together in 2016. We did the ATR expedition race together, and it was after that. Then we were kind of looking for something to do, and we had done the race up here in Donegal. And after that, then we were a bit of a loose end for a couple of months. So I had this idea for a while, and London was on for it. So we we got a good crew together, actually, which was for anybody who's maybe thinking about doing it. It's, it's as important as anything is having the, the logistical side of things planned. Um, so yeah, I got Team Donegal Oil. Um, there's a, a local company up here who, who likes to take on challenges like that. So we had a few good lads there that looked after the route planning and everything. So we really didn't have to worry much about that. We just kind of gave them an idea of wh- when we wanted to start and where we wanted to be at certain times, and they worked around that. So um, yeah, we started in I think it was in, in Galway, and um, yeah, I got got the boat across Kilroy Shards. Uh, I know Shane um, there in Kilroy, he looked after that first. So that actually saved us about well over an hour of, of a drive so um, we were looking for little games like that kind of wherever we could Yeah I think the only way of beating your record now would, would be maybe to use a helicopter to get from uh, <laughs> one point to one point so I, I think it's fairly out of reach now so I'm going to forget about that Before you went into this had you much experience with uh, sleep deprivation? Um, not so much no I mean uh, as I mentioned already the Dietera expedition race was over kind of five or six days and that was kind of really my first dabble of sleep deprivation. So um, I know we'd maybe gone something like 40, maybe 40 hours without sleep starting you know, the first two days. And then um, we just tried to grab a couple hours here and there. But I actually deal, deal okay with sleep deprivation. I think if, I, if I'm able to get 15 minutes kind of every now and then, it, it keeps me going. Um, so, yeah, I, I deal okay with it. But I think our major issue was travel sickness. Um both of us kind of had upset tummies after the first day, um, just from going from exertion and then trying to relax again in the car and trying to eat as you're traveling. And I know London had a lot of trouble um, as, as the journey went on, but uh, that was kind of the biggest issue for us. Right. When you mentioned dealing with sickness, did at any point in the journey you have feelings of having to stop or drop out of it? Uh, personally, I was okay. Um, I, I felt good throughout. I have to say, um, I was able. Luckily, I was able to sleep when you know when I closed my eyes, I was asleep, and we basically slept in eps in between each mountain, and then we we're ready to go. Um, I think Lonan went through a real bad spell um, after I think we were in, in Armagh at the time, so we only had about three or four peaks left, and at that stage, it was touch and go for a bit. Um, we, but we we just settled ourselves. We knew we were well ahead of the the previous record so we said look if we've got to take an hour we take it and we actually changed our transport so we we moved from the, the van we were traveling into a car and London got to sit in the front seat and that worked wonders and by, by the next mountain he was fine again so yeah we just we kept it cool and uh, we just seen it through really So that was 2017 will I be right in saying that 2014 was your first ultra distance event the OCC Yeah Correct, yeah. Um, I suppose previous to that, I, I, I would have done a lot of cycling. Um, I suppose I, I raced the bike probably for five or six years before that. And uh, kind of to a decent level here in the country. And um, it was 2013, and I just had a really busy year. I was getting married and stuff. And I just decided to 
you know, we do a bit of running was less time consuming. So I, I did I ran it up a marathon on uh that twenty thirteen and then I had I'd seen in Eurosport actually the UTMB was, was was on one night and I just I was really drawn into it. So I said, Yeah, that's something I'd like to try. And the following year was the first year off the OCC. So I just threw my name into the lottery and luckily enough I was selected. So yeah, I went over there in August of twenty fourteen and had the longest I'd run before that was a marathon. So it wasn't too much of a step up, it was whatever, another ten K or so. But a uh, whole different story with the mountains. But no, it was great great experience. Now, previous to that, I know that you were into mountain biking and you had taken part in the Trans Rockies mountain bike race back in 2009 and you also did a mountain bike race in the Isle of Man and then you did a couple of road racing, uh, sorry, cycling road racing events and then you stopped. Was oh, Sorry, I don't mean you stopped, but it looks yeah. then as, to me as if you shifted from the bike to your feet yeah uh, I suppose I'd probably say it's more about my, my personality really because I suppose before I started cycling I, I played football for years and I kind of took things as far as we go with it um, so I kind of had my full of football and I always enjoyed cycling I would have raced the bike when I was kind of under 10s under 12 so I kind of picked that back up again around kind of was in college and started doing it more for leisure and then yeah, as you say, I, I raced um, raced the road bike quite a bit. I did the mountain biking more for fun um, and just just to travel and to, to to see places. So the Trans Rockies was a great experience. I, I rode that long with uh, my brother. So it was a, a week riding through the Canadian Rockies. So it was a great experience. And I suppose I, I rode the Ross in a couple of years. So it was a real eye opener. And I think look at the, any domestic cyclist here in the country will tell you the, the Ross is torture for for any club rider. It's um, it's just a big step up and. I suppose it, it was a great experience in a way um, to show me kind of the level that the the pro continental guys are at, and um, it was a bit of a reality check really for you. So I, as I say, that was 2011, 2012, and then yeah, just life took over in 2013, and the, the bike is very time consuming. So I figured I'd start running, and then as I say, it led me down the path of ultra running and, and trail running in particular. I like being in the mountains, so that's kind of how I ended up there. And was the running kind of accidental or was it, do you think, a natural progression from the cycling? Uh, I think it was a natural progression because I, I like the multi-sport side of things. I, I always did a bit of running. Um, I live beside the Forest Park here and Mucky um, Shenerigal are, are just a short driveway. So I would have always kind of dabbled in that even when I was cycling and playing football. So it was kind of there in the background all the time. Um, I never really dedicated myself to it. I would have ran the odd 5K locally or 10K. Um and just, I suppose it was only then when I committed to it that I kind of says, right, I, can, I, I like the long stuff and especially the trail side of things. And where you live, would that be hilly kind of terrain with the roads or would it be fairly flat? Like, I'm just trying to figure out what might have made you take up cycling because I'm thinking if you were living in an area that's very bumpy, cycling would yeah. be quite tough for somebody starting off and it's something you could actually lose yeah. interest in. Well, I live here near Dunsanahy, so anybody who's been up to Donegal to do the Seven Sisters will um, be familiar with the area. So, yeah, it's it's really, it's coastal, it's it's hilly, we've, we've got six, seven hundred metre peaks all around us here. So, um, it's, it's quite like regions of or parts of Kerry or Wicklow. Um, so, yeah, look, it's perfect training ground for, for any sort of athlete, whether it be bike or running or swimming. 
But um, no, I, I kind of always liked the bike because I grew up and my cousin was a cyclist and he would have been kind of a big influence on me when I was, uh, you know, at a young age. And then there's a lot of good cyclists locally. You had a lot of Cranford guys who were, were racing on youth tours and things like that I would have been familiar with. And obviously Philip Dagnan from Liverkinney, uh, who rode professionally for years. Uh, I would have been familiar with him growing up as well. I would have raced him a few times underage. And it was just kind of, at the time, I suppose there wasn't many doing it. Um, I would have been a bit of a, a loner here on the bike, um, whereas now it's you know just people on the road every day. Like you, you go out, you're, you're, you're sure to pass uh, a number of cyclists, you know, no matter what journey you take. Well, that's interesting when you mention your cousin being a cyclist. I suppose it shows the importance of role models in our lives and, and how they can influence what we do in sport. And that in itself probably helped you stick with the cycling and then the strength that you got from the cycling transferred across to the trail running. Yeah, absolutely. Um, like my, my cousin would have lived in Dublin and I think that's kind of how he got into to the cycling too. Um, so he, he would have raced a bit and I would have gone and watched races as, you know, maybe as an eight or 10 year old. And it definitely, you know, it was definitely a good role model to have and, you know, I would have looked up to that at, that, at the time. Um, and I suppose... I stepped away from it then a wee bit just to, to focus on football because that was kind of the, the norm as such as, as it is in many places in Ireland. Um, and I suppose the structures weren't in place back then either for you know, cycling clubs. It was the nearest cycling club to me was maybe you know 45 minutes an hour away. So I would have been traveling there to do that and it just wasn't really feasible. But um, yeah, it, look, it, it was still in the legs, I guess. And the, the desire to, to ride the bike was still there. And it was only later on in life that I picked it up again, you know. And when you mentioned your cousin living in, uh, being in Dublin, it probably helped him get into it when where, where the roads are that bit flatter. Absolutely, and and he was racing with the club up there, and you know he he learned he basically learned how to how to ride the bike and you know how how to ride in a group, and and I suppose uh, it brought the racing side of it as well. So I remember Ross Donegal was on. Um, uh, it's a three-day race that used to be held up here and uh, I remember his team come up from Dublin and he was riding for them and I actually got to sit in the, the crew car for the weekend and stuff so you know, that was a great experience as a young lad like getting getting to see that. And then since 2014 you have more or less done some kind of an ultra-distance trail race every year since then and mostly abroad and then 2020 you took part in the Art O'Neill and you won that race and then you also did the Seven Sisters Skyline and mm. posed that being on your on your doorstep. When you went yeah. into that, I suppose you must have been oozing confidence. Yeah, I think um, say I, I kind of did, did an ultra every year since 2014 or a number of ultras. And I think mainly it was to acquire points to do the full UTMB course. Um, so I always had that in mind. So every race I targeted was, was towards that. It was towards getting the points to build up the distance. So... No, what I went from doing 50k say in 2014 to the CCC would it be 100k. Actually, did the did two in between that, uh, 75k and 80k. So I, I did it progressively. I stepped up my distances. I didn't I didn't go crazy, you know. Um, I kind of wanted to build up into it and and make it sustainable, just so that I wasn't going to injure myself. And um, as you say, then I did the Art of Neil in the start of 20 yeah 2020 um, or no 2019 sorry. And uh, I had had a really good year in 2018. I actually won a lot of national adventure races, and then did the Art and Neil. And um, yeah, it was, it was a good experience. I actually seen you at the start. Um, I was going to head over here, but I got sidetracked. And, oh, that's uh, a pity. Yeah, 
yeah, it was, just, it was good, good experience. But um, it's a, it's a tough race, you know, because it's the, the first thirty k on road it really trashes the legs because it's, it's normally at a quite a fast pace, and then you're straight into the hills. And like for me, I took the race serious enough because I had um, had a long spell out before that, um, maybe six months out. I had I had broken my collarbone and I had to take a couple months off for it, and then. Actually, I had to get eye surgery. Um, so again, I had another six weeks after that. So I was itching to get going again. And, and to be honest, it, it was probably good because I had a lot of rest and I had time to kind of just re-energize myself and, and build towards the following year. So I was starting from scratch again, really. And Ardenil was my first outing. So I was highly motivated for it. And um, I actually took two trips down to Wicklow to, just to wreck the route. So I remember the first time I went down, it was actually, uh, I think I didn't land down until about 10 p.m. So it was ideal. I just went straight out into the hills, and I think I was back in the car around 3 a.m. So it was basically the time of night you'd be doing that section anyway. So yeah, it, it stood to me on the night. Then I kind of I knew the lay of the land, and uh, had done it on a really bad night as well. So kind of any clear night was a bonus to me. Um, so yeah, it went well. I have to say, I, I ran a lot of the race with um, Adrian Hennessy, and I think it was the second last checkpoint. I just. I pulled out a bit of a gap and kept it going into the finish. So, yeah, it was a nice one-to-one. I was actually going to ask you that when you mentioned about the recce, how familiar with Wicklow were you? Because the Ardenail can be a tricky enough route. It's A lot of it's on road, and then you have to know where you're going to turn off. And I think going up to the section where you where you turn off the road can be quite lonely, and especially when, when it's when it's dark, you will always going to think you're going the wrong way. And just, although you said you, you see me at the start, I wasn't actually taking part in the race. So I just, I went in to see them off and, and then it helps me sleep that bit better when, when I know there's someone out suffering and I'm there in <laughs> warm bed with a soft pillow. <laughs> yeah, like I, I, I think it's important to recce routes, um, especially if you're, you know, I was, I was unfamiliar with Wicklow. I was only ever been there once or twice and it was always, you know, a flagged route. So uh, I was definitely unfamiliar with the course. Um, I'd spent a lot of time looking at Google Maps and stuff, but you have to be on the ground really to, to understand. And like that section after the Arts Cross, you know, there's very featureless like, so you need to have an understanding of where you're, where you're going, even if it's just a direction, you know, just a, a bearing. Um, but no, like I, I would have used View, View Ranger app um, for, to navigate when I was down doing the wrecking. And obviously I had it on my watch as well. So, I kind of had that as backup, but on the race day, I didn't need it. I just I kind of knew where I was and in what direction I was going. So, And no matter how familiar you are with the route, once you switch off the lights or mist comes down, it can change everything, can't it? Absolutely. Um, especially up there, you know, it, it is featureless rather than there's some big hags and, and there's bog sections, but, you know, there's, there's very little streams and kind of ridge lines you can follow. So it, it, it is very easy to go off, off your toes. Now, just as we're talking about this at the moment, about being out in the dark and unfamiliar territory, what would you actually carry with you in your bag? On a daily basis? Um, well, say for an event like this. Oh, for an event like that, well, obviously you have the the, the, you know, the required kit. Um, so everything that should be needed is, is on that on that list. But even if it isn't, I would always have... Um, you know, I'm always fearful of my torch going out. Um so, you know, even if it doesn't suggest a backup light, I would always have a backup light. Um, even if it's only a, a very small, you know, just enough to get you walking out as opposed to running out. Um, so I would always have a backup light, definitely. 
And then I don't like to carry too much. Um, like all racers, you want to go as light as possible. But, you know, I, I always have an extra layer of some sort, um, even if it's just a one breaker and, and uh, same with waterproof bottoms. So, like, I would generally carry that on a, on a regular run myself, um, just in case, you know, you, you do twist an ankle or you get slowed up some way. Uh, you don't want to get hypothermic then along with it. And, I mean, Narvanil is in the middle of the night and the start of January, so, like, it's often well below freezing. So you want to make sure you're well prepared for up in the wicker house. So you would always try and go as minimalist as possible? I would, yeah. Depending on the race. Um, if it's a race I'm into one and I know I can want it, um, I'll go as light as possible. But if it's a race I'm a bit more conservative and a, you know, I'm, I'm more there to complete it, then I will carry some a little bit on the heavier side. And apart from your torch, are there any other non-negotiables that you would always make sure to have with you? Yeah, I always take a foil blanket um, because I've learned the importance of those before in adventure races. And even if you just get get held up, you know, if you lose your navigation and you've got to spend the night out in the mountain, um, a foil blanket really can save your life. So that or a bivy bag, you know. Um, so I've had to use both before, and it's just it's, it really is a lifesaver. So I definitely have one of those, and they're easy carries. You know, there's no weight to a foil blanket, and it, it folds away into nothing. So. I generally always have one of those with me as well. So we mentioned wrecking a route. A lot of the races you have done have been overseas and you don't always get the chance to wreck a route. What would have been maybe your your favourite of the ultra trail races? Um, I suppose I, I did Transvolcania and, uh, and La Palma and the Canaries. 2018? Um, it's, it's yeah, it's a beautiful race. Um so you start down at the southern tip of the island, down at the lighthouse, and then you, you just traverse the island. And like if anybody's been to the Canaries, it's volcanic, and you know you have beautiful views over the oceans and that. But I think it is fast race. But I'm always drawn back to the Alps um, and the UTMB course in particular. Uh, just I suppose my first ultra experience was there, and it's probably always stuck with me. Um, so yeah, I just uh, I love the especially around Cormier there. Um, that first section of the CCC uh, for anybody that's familiar with it it's, it's, it's just stunning um, that, that first 20-30k so um, yeah I, I suppose that's the standout part for me really would be that section and even this year when I did the UTMB it, I was looking forward to doing that and it happened to be sunrise as I was going over it and it was just yes, breathtaking And where do you think your strengths lie when you're doing these races uphill, downhill or just keeping it steady on undulating terrain uh, I, I think I'm I'm probably a strong climber. Um, even if you look at my splits and things, I, I generally, you know, I, I hold my own with, with the best on the uphills. Um, I might lose a bit on the downhills, um, but maybe that's probably I'm trying to save myself a little bit. Um, especially this year, and when, when you move up in distance, you've got to be a little bit more conservative, especially how you run downhill, because um, you can really, really hurt yourself in the downhills and, and do damage later on in the race. So. I think uphill definitely, even locally in like the Seven Sisters, I, I would leak out a lot of time in uphills, um, just just power hiking. It's not even running, it's just really strong power hiking, and then yeah, just quick feet the whole way down. So I, I think probably the, the strength even from the bike, um, I think it helps me on uphills definitely. I was actually going to ask that now. Would you have trained specifically for that with the uphill? But I was actually thinking there as well. Yeah, the bike would do that because you're. You're climbing with the bike and you've either got, I suppose, an uphill or a downhill and you're downhill, you're freewheeling, you don't have much flatness. 
Yeah, the bike does help. Um, you know, I, I suppose I, I would train specifically for whatever race I'm doing. So, you know, obviously, if, if it's the Seven Sisters, I try and be on the course as much as I can, or at least replicate it. Um, so you're, you know, you're doing hill repetitions, but it's not so much running hill repetitions, it's more get get a steep hill and hike up and run down and hike up and run down. So, um, you know, I'd be doing that even for, for UTMB this year. I would have been doing reps on Aragal or reps on Muckish. So again, it'd be steady up and run down, and just I'd actually run hard down to try and trash the legs a little bit. Um, but it's very hard to replicate, you know, the steepness that you're going to experience over Alps, and and for the duration, you know, you're down Errigal in 20 minutes, whereas over there you're running downhill for an hour. So it's it's quite quite hard to replicate that. And when you mention running hard downhill to trash the legs a bit, that's I suppose a very important and underlooked part of the actual training for a trail race. When somebody looks at hill reps, they think of the hill rep always going up because downhill just feels like free wheeling on a bike. But as you mentioned, it is important to train your body for that eccentric movement going downhill where you're hammering the quads. Would you have a strategy that you would use in training to prevent you from overdoing it that allows you to have your training as continuous rather than having to take long breaks because of excessive muscle damage? Yeah, well, it's it's always a toss-up. Um, it's, it's a very fine line between getting it right and, and overcooking it. Um, yeah, I suppose, like, I wouldn't train every day in the house, so it's, it's important to mix it up. You know, people think that if you're running a road race and it's flat, then it's all flat running you should be doing. Um, you know, you've got to mix it up. You've got to put in hills. And in summer, if it's all hill running you're doing, you've got to also do the flat speed stuff. So I never do too much of one thing. And I think that helps stave off any injury, touch wood. Um, you know, so really I'd be doing looking at maybe two days in the mountains. And then I would do, you know, my, my long run could be just undulating, um, not even on the, hill, on the mountains, but just in, in smaller hills in the parks and stuff. And then I would do two flat sessions uh, in the week, so one of them being speed work. So I think it's important not to do too much of the one thing, and that way your your body avoids any injury by, by doing that. You've said something there that I think is very important and very relevant, so I'm going to repeat it. You said that you don't do too much of the one thing. You mix it up a bit, and you also mm-hmm. do some faster stuff on the flat. I think that's really, really important as well. To train yourself for... Uh, fast running and for speed it's good to mm-hmm. do it in a safe environment as well which is somewhere that's kind of flat you haven't got to worry about tripping up over a rock when you're running down a hill maybe and I think that is important because it transfers in across to the trail running is to maybe maybe yeah. if you're doing interval sessions to do them on four roads that would be relatively okay or on the tarmac road would you think so? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, like I'm lucky I have Forest Park here beside me, so I have a great mix of, of terrain. I have plenty of undulating fire road, but I also have uh, like a three kilometer stretch of tired road. Um, so I would do my, my speed interval sessions on the tired road, and then I can do other tempo runs and stuff in, on the trails. Um, so like you're not trashing your legs on running hard down hills or you know, on tired roads or on concrete. Um, and like when you go to Muckish or go to an Errigal or any mountain, like your risk of injury is much higher. So it's important that you're doing them maybe on your fresher days as well. So that you're not going in fatigued and, and you know, on the cusp of an injury. So it's it's important that maybe, you know, if you're doing your, your hard mountain session, that maybe your, your the day before that is your, your easy day or your rest day. 
Um, so yeah, like I, I don't follow too much of a structure, but I think I'm, I'm at it long enough now that I know I can read the body. I guess it's and, intuitive. Um, yeah, yeah, and like I'm, I'm not a slave to any sort of of routine either. I mean, if, if there's a day that I, I feel like I want to do four hours in the mountains, I'll go and I'll do it. But um, you know, and if there's a day that I'm I'm supposed to do a speed session and I'm just not feeling it, um, it's not that I'll back out of it, but you know, I might warm up and, and test it. And if it's not happening, it's not happening. I can do it again tomorrow, you know? So I think sometimes you just have to listen to your body as well. Um, you know, it's, it's important not to, not to overdo things. You're, you're better being healthy, um, you know, than fit and unhealthy. Yes, healthy first and fit second. Now, how do you quantify Absolutely. your training? Do you measure training load or weekly training volume or... Is there something else that you would use to, I uh, suppose, determine what you're going to do the next day? Yeah, well, I do use training peaks, and obviously it is a stress score for for each activity. So generally, I would try and have a certain total at the end of a week, um, and I would have an idea before that, you know, that this hard section is going to give me a you know a training stress score of two hundred or whatever. So I would kind of, you know, I would I would structure it around. I, a lot of people get hung up on that Saturday or Sunday has to be a long run. And, you know, a lot of that is structured around work and weekends and time off and stuff. But, you know, I would kind of work in maybe a seven-day cycle. So, like, my seven-day cycle could start on a Wednesday and finish the following week. Um, you know, so my long run could happen to, to be on, like, a Friday night or something or a, a Monday morning. So I'm not necessarily structured to this, you know, your long run Saturday, long run Sunday. Um, it's just whatever works into kind of my weekly schedule. Um I suppose with two young kids, you, you have to you have to be adaptable, you know. So I think that's kind of how I would structure myself. I, I aim to do three or four key things over a seven-day cycle. And then I would maybe take a day or two easy and then go again for another seven days. Yeah, that's a good plan because I think for longevity, there has to be a certain amount of flexibility. And when you mentioned training peaks and the training stress score, how does the training stress core differ between a hard running session and a hard cycling session? Well, I think it's the stress score for a run, you would achieve it much easier than you would for a bike. Um, personally, you know, because I think I, I operate maybe at a higher heart rate when I'm running um, than I would on the bike. So I would struggle to get, get my heart rate as high on the bike as I would uh, on a run. So I guess my stress score is naturally going to be higher from, from running. Um, and also, I guess the, the duration of a run, um, you know, if it's a two-hour run, will be equivalent to maybe a four- or five-hour bike. You know, so it's it's probably easier to get that level of exertion through a run than it will be through a bike. The reason I'm asking that is because if you're allowing the training stress score to help determine your training and you're someone who's highly motivated, can you kind of trick yourself into believing that what you're doing is less stressful than it actually is because you do have to work harder on the bike to elevate a heart rate because you're only using the lower part of your body so you haven't got that same movement uh, with your arms and mm. uh, and then you haven't got the stress of hitting the ground. But o- overall, throughout the week, it can be a high volume of training. Now, I suppose this isn't relevant to just you because we, we know what you're doing and what you're getting out of it. I'm just trying to mention this for anybody who could be listening in when you're training for I think, a multi-sport event you have to remember that that all the different training sessions will be working you aerobically and you've only got one heart so it's very easy to overstress 
the hard yeah. and go into kind of overtraining. But boy, if you were just doing running, there will be kind of a limit to how much you can do in a week. But if you're taking a break from the running and then you're adding in a lot of cycling and then in your case, you're probably out in the kayak as well. So it, it's mm-hmm. a it's a lot of work. It's not something you can just go and do. Now, you have a lot of experience. So you, as you said, you're, yeah, you're intuitive and you're flexible. So you know what you can do. Yeah, I, th- I think what's important to note is that you would never do two two hard sessions in the one day. So like sometimes you, you know, you aim to do a bike and a run. So if, if the bike's hard and the run is easy or, or vice versa. So I would never hammer both um, unless it was a specific brick session where I was trying to replicate a race scenario or something like that. But if I was doing a double day, um, you know, I might do a run in the morning. So it could be a casual, you know, 8K, 10K run. Uh, heart rate like literally 130 beats you know like a zone one and then the evening session could be a turbo session where I'm on, on for an hour and it could be in, in zone four for you know half an hour um, so like you, you can't you can't burn the candle at both ends you, you've got to be sensible and you know really like doing two hard sessions in one day is, is, is not really sensible plus you've got to feel well in between and recover well in between so you know with the kayak then as well, um, it's never as exerting. So you can use that as a strength, as a strength exercise, really. Um, and then obviously you've got to throw in some some weight sessions as well. So you'd be doing maybe one or two core sessions per week. So I think, you know, a lot of guys go out in the hammer every session and you're, you're just burying yourself, really. So I think it's important that, you know, your easy days are easy. And then when you have a specific session to do, should it be your, your interval run session or your maybe a, a turbo session that you make those that your hard sessions that they're only adding up to, you know, it's the 80-20 rule again. You know, it's 20% of your, your time is spent at the hard stuff and the rest then is aerobic. So I think if, if you stick to that, you, you know, you will see progress and, and you won't exert yourself too much either. Right, this is fantastic information now. And just what you mentioned there about two hard training sessions in a day, that's a race. That's the equivalent of doing a race if you're if you're doing two really hard training sessions, and I'm guessing that what you mentioned there when you say doing a specific brick session, where you are working hard, but you're still in control mm. of what you're doing, so you know how much you can do. You know how how long you can keep your hand against a hot plate before you're going to get burnt. That is something that yeah, well, comes with experience. That's that's the experiment of, of one. You're you're doing the training, you get the experience, and you know what you can do. And more specifically, you know what you can't do. Yeah, I think that that's really what worked for me in 2018. When I you know up and thought I was having the odd victory, and I was you know I was knocking on kind of podiums and stuff, but I would always die a death towards the end. Maybe um, I was just maxed the whole time. So. In 2018, I kind of started to do more off the brickwork and replicating risk scenarios. So rather than just going for a cycle and then maybe the next day going for a run, I would on a Saturday morning I might set up a you know set up a transition area here at the house. So I'd have my runners ready and my drinks ready and whatever, and I would go and do an hour on the bike. I might throw in you know two 15 minute intervals to to replicate you know an attack or you know some sort of move in the race, and then I'd literally cycle straight back to the house jump off onto the runners and then I would maybe say do an 8k run off the bike and again like you could replicate risk scenarios there so it's not a flat out 8k but you know you're you're pushing it and you know you might jump back on the bike then right to Muckish you know 8 or 10k steady to the mountain and then you might do the mountain hard and then you just ride home as a recovery so you're stimulating the race 
um, in, in training, but you always have the safety net that you know it's you're at home, you know you're, you're never more than half an hour from the house if you if you need something. So um, I think that stood well to me, and it's it's something I'll definitely use this year as I do more more multi sport racing again. And between 2014 and 2019, you have had some phenomenal achievements. I think in 2018, you raced a lot and you finished fourth in a lot of races. So you must have been finding it hard, or maybe not so much finding it hard, but I suppose you were probably using the, the races then as training to some extent. Like they, were, they were probably your hard sessions, really. Yeah, very much so. Um, I probably raced too much in 2018. Um, I... You know, I was doing the national series, so I had to score five races, and I think I maybe put two or three of them on the board pretty early in the year. And then I also had like Transylvania and and a couple of races, you know, outside of the multi sport stuff to look forward to. So, as you say, like I didn't have much time for training. Um, I was literally racing, and then I might take it easy for four or five days and recover, and then I'd build for two weeks, and then I might taper for a few days and then race again. And that was kind of the sequence for. Yeah, for most of the year, really. But I think it was good up until a point. Um, I went and did the TDS then at the uh, at the UTMB races, and uh, I was just I was blown out of the water. Um, I just had I think I had too much in the in the legs at that stage, and I hadn't given the race the respect it needed, you know. So I, I actually raced too much up towards that, uh, rather than just specifically dedicating a bit of you know a training block of maybe six or eight weeks towards that. So like I had raced maybe two weeks before. Um, and then expected to go over there and and, and run 125k, you know, and I think it's it really came back to to haunt me in that race. Um, I went through a, a rough patch and um, I took a bit of time off after that. I actually took three full weeks off after that race, but then I came I bounced back pretty good then. Um, I think two more victories after that. So yeah, um, you can use racing as training um, as long as you're recovering well in between and and building sensibly towards the next race again. Speaking of recovery, you can only do what you can recover from, and you do quite a lot, so you must have a very good recovery strategy. Can you talk us a little bit through that? Yeah, I think for me, recovery actually starts during the race, um, because the minute you let yourself get dehydrated in a race, that's going to knock on your recovery by at least three or four days. Um, so like, if you can stay on top of things during the race, uh, just your electrolytes and your and your fluids, especially. Um, it means that the next day you're not as sore and crampy and dehydrated, and it means that you can actually get out the next day for a light cycle or uh, even just a walk, and you're not hobbling down the stairs, you know. And I think for me that was key because I used to just bury myself in a race and like not worry about nutrition, and that was something I'd worry about after the race. And I'd be coming down the stairs backwards for two or three days after a hard race. Whereas now I've learned to, you know, fuel during the race well and then straight after, you know, just get certain things into it. Should it be a protein shake or a glass of milk or something? And uh, I think I'm lucky to live beside the sea here, so I would often go down and just dip the legs in, um, you know, after a race or the next morning when I get a chance. So I think there's certain things you can do that everybody can do, like even just having food ready um, after training sessions. You know, I always make sure I... I if I'm making dinner, I make more than I need, so I have it for the next day. So it stops you making bad choices when it comes to nutrition and, and how you recover. Um, you know there's a lunchbox there with, with something good in it. So it's it's always sitting ready for me. So I think that's important is your nutrition. Um, and then I think probably the most important thing is sleep, really. Um, and like I suppose with me this year, 
I've been struggling to get sleep. There's a, I had a newborn baby there back uh, last October, so like that can throw things off definitely um, if you're not getting your sleep. So they're the two key things for me really: is, is eating well and getting your nutrition and fluids in, and um, and your sleep. And what more do you have in that lunchbox? Um, look, at I, I don't do anything fancy. Um, I'm a real plain eater, but I mean, the base of my diet will be a lot of carbs, so rices, rice and pastas, um, potatoes, and then obviously a lot of protein as well. So, you know, chicken and, and even just um, tuna and salmon and things like that. And I eat a lot of eggs, actually. So, you know, I would just have maybe leftover stir fries or, or even bolognese and things like that. So that's recovering from the inside going out. Do you do anything to help you recover on the outside? Any issues with your uh, legs, muscles, feet? Um, actually, pretty pretty good. Um, I would I would actually put it down a lot too. I, I don't overdo a whole lot of stretching. Um, I do do quite a bit of core work. So I think it's important that you've got a strong core um, because obviously everything's, everything bounces off that. So... You know, if, if you're having ankle trouble, it's probably coming from your hips or your stomach muscles. So, you know, I, I make sure I maintain that. Um, and I, I'm well aware the minute I stop doing that, I get issues. So uh, I definitely maintain that. Um, I do get physio quite often, um, even just sports massage, kind of every, definitely once a month, um, just to, it's more to stop anything from happening. Um, so prevention, I suppose. Um, but yeah, outside of that, not much, you know. Um, I just I just keep active. You know, I don't like to stop for too long. Um, even though in the this winter season, like um, I do pull back a good bit on the running. I'll I'll do more just hiking. Hopefully, there's a bit of snow. I'll get to do a bit of bit of climbing and stuff. So um, I think having a good variety and and not as I say again, not focusing too much on one thing um, will also help you from from getting injured. Now I'm going to go back to the. 26 peaks which is the highest point in every county in Ireland and the reason it's 26 peaks instead of 32 is that some of the mountains actually cross two counties so you go up one side mm. you can come down the other now I want to talk a little bit, a little bit about uh, teamwork if Lonan wasn't available and you were to do this challenge again how would you choose a teammate what do you look for um, yeah well I think First of all, myself and Loma are very similar. Um, you know, not only in fitness, but I suppose our personalities are quite similar. So, you know, it was the perfect teammate to, to have in that adventure. Um, but yeah, I think a lot of things I do is is on my own. Um, I would have grown up playing team sports, so I would know the dynamic of teams. Um, but yeah, like looking for somebody who's would be up for the 26 peaks, you know, they obviously have to have the fitness first of all, but I think the, the mental strength is, is really as important over something of that duration. You know, so you'd be somebody who's not overly, I want to say somebody who's positive, but not one of these guys that's going to, you know, just do your head in with positivity, but somebody who's just, yeah, look, this is how it is. Let's get on with it. Um, so, you know, it's more about getting the job done. And I mean, we went through some, some rough spells in that 26 weeks together, but Never did it cross your minds that we weren't going to finish it, you know. Um, we, we said we'll, we'll, we'll see it through. So I suppose that's kind of what you're looking for in a person, really, is that they've got that determination just to, you know, if, once you commit to something, you're going to do it. Um, so, yeah, that's what I'd be looking for. You also give your support crew very good credit, and well, rightly so. How would you choose a support crew? And how important do you think the support crew is to your success? 
yeah, those, those guys were crucial. Um, we had, I think we had five or six in total. Um, two or two, two of the lads are, they're renowned. They, they do a lot of kind of adventure driving. So they've, they've through the Andes and, um, all different regions in Iceland and stuff. And they're, they love the logistical side of things. So we knew that we're in safe hands there, that they would have everything worked out to a T. And then I had the support of Arthur McMahon and, and Donegal Oil and, like Arthur's a good guy. He, he's got a sports background as well as a business background, so he's well in tune with things. And you know, there, there were guys you could trust. So you know, we didn't we give them an outline of what we wanted, and we give that responsibility to them. So we said, like, you drop us at the base of the mountain. We'll look after the mountain, and you look after everything in between. And you know, that that was the deal really. And they didn't question us, and we didn't really question them. So. You know, it's, I suppose it was a mutual understanding between both. They they wanted to break the record as much as we did. So yeah, look, it, you, you couldn't do it without a good crew. Um, I've I've had some guys contact me saying, "Oh, there's four of us doing it. We're going to drive," and I'm like, "Guys, you're going to be so wrecked. You know, it's dangerous. First of all, you, you know, you'll be falling asleep, and you're you know you're expecting to drive to the next mountain and then climb it. I was like, get a crew that you can trust. So yeah, it's invaluable, really." I can't really add anything to that because that sounds kind of perfect. There's a saying that goes, jack of all trades, master of none, but you seem to Mm. be jack of all trades and have mastered them all. So I'm just wondering now, with the range of events that you have done, do you let the event actually choose you or do you go out looking for something specific to where you're going to cycle it or run it or whatever have you a preference yeah, well, I, I suppose first of all I, I wouldn't consider myself an exceptional athlete of any of the disciplines but I think when you combine them I'm, you know I'm up there um, you know like I ran cross country the weekend and I got destroyed um, but like I think if I set my mind to something uh, you know I'll, I'll be knocking on the door of, of most races um, but I think when you combine the bike and the, the kayaking and the running it's kind of where I'm best at so yeah, I suppose taking out events. Um, yeah, I do target certain events. Uh, you know, should it be ones that I'm just drawn to, the likes of a big ultra run or a multi-sport race. Um, but I suppose now that I've I've done some of them, um, I'm getting a bit more selective of what I'm doing. So, you know, coming up in I was supposed to go this February um, to New Zealand uh, to do the the coast to coast race there, but obviously with COVID, it's been pushed back a year. So really. What I'm doing in 2022 is towards coast to coast in 2023. So, you know, it might look as if I'm doing what I did in 2018, but really what I'm doing is I'm, I'm preparing myself for, you know, February uh, 2023, really. So uh, that's kind of the long term goal. So, would you, I suppose it's the sum of the whole is greater than the individual parts. Your strength really comes together when you bring all your sports together. Would that be right? I think so, yeah. I mean, there's there's better runners than me out there, definitely. Um, and then there's obviously better cyclists. Um, but and when it comes to a multi-sport race or adventure race, it, it, it definitely evens itself out. And, you know, I can hold my own in the kayak. So it just means that you're you're always in the mix. Um, you know, you, you might be second or third coming off the run, but then you pull those guys back on the bike. And then when it comes to the kayak, you might eat out a little bit. So, yeah, definitely the sum of everything um, is definitely where I kind of come to the fore. I heard someone say before about a triathlon, they couldn't swim as fast as a shark, but they could run <laughs> faster than a shark. So it would come down to the bike section. 
I've heard that saying before, right? Yeah. One of your events, or I suppose holidays, that really, really interested me was back in 2019, the expedition Amundsen. How did that yeah. come about? Yeah, the expedition Amundsen. So, for anybody that's not familiar with it, it's um, it's a ski race. It takes place in Norway each year um, on the Hardangavida. So, it's a, a mountain plateau. Um, it's it's not too far north. It's kind of kind of lower half of Norway, and um, yeah, like yourself, John, you, you've you've experience of Arctic and polar regions. Yeah, but, and, and uh, I, I've been to the Hardanger Plateau. Uh, it's just beyond Rukin, mm, where the uh, hard, the heavy water plant was. That where Hitler yeah. was using that to try and make the atom bomb, and that's where the heroes of Telemark. They came across That's the right. Hardanger Plateau, a f- fantastic place. So I, anyway, I'm about to interrupt you there. So tell us yeah, a bit more. No, no. So, so yeah, I, I, I suppose like most people, um, or not most people, but anybody that's into adventure, you would have read maybe some of the, the Shackleton and the Scott stories from from Antarctica and Tom Crean and things like that. And I would always have had an interest in that. And I was back, I think in maybe 2014, I, I did a uh, an Arctic skills course in Sweden for a week, and then. I kind of really liked the, the environment up there. So I went down myself a couple of times to, to Norway and did a bit of cross-country skiing. And then I did a, a crossing of Finnmark, uh, Finnmark's Vida, which is way up north, up near Tromso, uh, inside the Arctic Circle. So I, I spent a week crossing it um, with Borg Usland uh, and his company. And uh, I just I shared a tent with a guy from Germany, um, a guy called Stefan Wagner. And we really had it off, you know, and... We had heard of this race and he was keen to do it and so was I. And I said, look, Stefan, if, if it ever comes about, did you want a teammate? I said, you know, I'd be keen to, to give it a go. So I think it was maybe two years after that, um, we sent in an application as a two-person team and they're, they're quite strict in who they live into it. Um, and obviously, I didn't have the experience you know, that would be required. Um, didn't, I'd only maybe three or four experiences on cross-country skis, but Stefan had done a lot of stuff. He'd crossed Greenland and things like that. So... They, they basically accepted our entry on, on the basis of, of his experience alone. So, yeah, we, long story short, we, we headed off to, um, I flew into Bergen and met him um, in, at the start. Um, and, yeah, we 100 kilometers across the, the mountain plateau of Hardangavita. So it was a great experience and uh, a, t- a tough race. You know, it's, I think it took us 40-odd hours. Um, but, yeah, harsh conditions. Um different to what I'm used to really um, you kind of had to look after yourself a lot more uh, you, you got to stay on top of even just your clothing and frostbite was always a, a danger so yeah it was, it was a great experience I think I'll have to start googling that one myself now this really sounds yeah, well, fantastic unfortunately oh, they, go on. they, they actually stopped they, 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 they halted it this year oh. um, so they've taken a break because the, the route actually it crosses or they say that it crosses the um, migration path of the reindeer, so they they've they're trying to plan alternative route now. So hopefully it comes back in next year or two. Do you remember the name of the Swedish army guy you were training with? Uh, Swedish army guy, I don't actually. Um, it, it was actually a UK guy that was um, okay. given the course. Yeah, right. yeah, it's an amazing place. Now I can I, I did some training there myself back in the. Mm late 90s and it was just fantastic I went to a place north of Sweden called Kiruna and then we, we travelled mm-hmm. north from Kiruna kind of as far as the road would go and then it was on the snowmobiles and brought it to the Arctic Circle yeah but yeah just amazing uh, yeah, yeah it's incredible it's, it's something 
something I'd like to do more of. Um, but yeah. Look, it's uh, Arctic travel is very expensive. Um, yeah, it is. You know, just, it is, yeah. and and it it's not just expensive for the sake of being expensive. It's just when you go into these extremes, like the price of everything goes up. Like it, I, I read about yeah. trying to get a, a drum of aviation fuel to one drum of aviation fuel to the South Pole could maybe be at the cost of 50 drums because you have to get the plane in, you have to get the plane out. So, yeah, it is, everything yeah. is very, very expensive. Uh, and then, like, Norway, Sweden, they are, compared to what we're used to, they are expensive countries as well. And especially as you go further north, things become less uh, accessible. Not some even going on a family holiday, yeah. yeah. Sure. When you were doing a race, were you... Uh, hauling your your gear on a pulk behind you. Yeah, we had a had a pulk each, and the race requires it to weigh forty kilograms at at the end of the race. So we had to make sure that you know each of each of our pulks had forty kg of weight. Um, so yeah, a long list of required equipment. Um, we obviously had a, our tent, um, a really good um, Helberg tent, I think it was, and uh, yeah, we had two stoves. And we had to take a certain amount of, of fuel for each stove as well. Uh, we had to have extra food rations, which were were bagged and sealed and only to be opened you know, in an emergency. So that was all as backup. Um, and then obviously we had to carry on sleeping gear and everything. So yeah, I think my my pork was something like forty eight kilos um, starting out, and it, it ended up about forty, just over the forty five uh, that was kind of required towards the end of the race. So. Yeah, we we would have camped. You had, you had three required stops over the race. Um, and you had the bank, and it was eight hours of rest. So whatever way you wanted to break it up. So we, we made a stop for two hours, two hours, and four hours. Um, and each time you, you pitched the tent and you got inside and you started melting snow for your water. And we just ate uh, you know, dehydrated food and just hot chocolates and things like that. So, um, yeah, it was a great experience. We got to spend one uh, one full night out on, on the plateau. Um, actually, it was in a pretty much of a storm as well. Um, so it was, the one show was kind of down around minus 15, minus 20 that night. So it was, um, yeah, good experience, but a tough one too. When you mentioned having to stop for a certain amount of time and you could break it up, what was your sleeping strategy? Yeah, so we, we had a, we had a race plan really, and it was to um, the first stop was literally just to to boil water, rehydrate, and get some food and go. Um, and that's pretty much what we did on the first stop. And then the the, the second one came after a really tough period of head ones. And by the time we got in, the two races were zapped, you know. And we had planned to take uh, t- two hours at that stop. And I think we actually overslept, and we took about three. Um, we we both actually slept through alarms. And it was only ice from the roof of the tent and the buffeting one that fell down hit me in the face. And that's what woke me up. And uh, we, we just got up and got going again. So they, they have these required stops just to, to keep check of everybody and just to make sure that everybody's get, getting sufficient rest and and also just um, hydrating because it's very hard to, to eat or drink on the go uh, when you're skiing. And obviously it's it's cold, so you're not wanting to take off gloves and things like that. So at least when you get into your tent, you can do those jobs and, and look after yourself a little bit better. If you were doing it again, would you change anything with your strategy for stopping? Uh, yeah, I think so. Um, the, reason I, I'm, yeah, the reason I'm asking this is because it takes so long to maybe set up a tent and take it back mm-hmm. down again. That if you were stopping, setting up a tent, getting in, 
and trying to make an effort to sleep for two hours and then having to get out. And it's tricky packing up everything again to at a later stage start on doing it again. So the time that you spend packing up could be spent sleeping. I'm just curious about that. Yeah, so I suppose just from the start, first of all, it, it actually took us by surprise how steep it was. Um, so we had to actually climb up onto the plateau. So, like, it was it's hard to explain. It, uh, like, I wouldn't be a proficient skier, but I had, like, long skins on the skis. And pulling the puck, obviously, it's, you know, obviously it, it glides in the snow. But And you, your, heel, your heel lifts on the ski, isn't that right? It did. Yeah, your heel lifts on the, on the And you slide it forward. So slide it forward and then you, your downward pressure should grip the snow underneath the ski um, with the skin underneath. But when it's so steep and obviously you've got this counterweight behind you at the puck, just wanting to pull you back down the hill all the time. So you're having to like, you know, you've got to do, do your, your fish skinning off the, you know, off the skis and you've got to sidestep into the mountain and, like that first section that we expected to take us maybe an hour and a half actually took us maybe double that. So, you know, we were well off our, our targets initially. But I suppose as a race went on, we got more proficient and, and you know, even my skiing improved over the course of the, the 40 odd hours. But going back to your question about the, the camp strategy in the tents, um, we had to take, we could take 59 minutes. And if we left before the hour, it didn't count. So you had to take it in hour blocks. So when you checked in with the marshal, your checkout time had to be one hour or you know, there was an hour block. So there was no point you staying for 50 minutes. You, were, you needed to stay for the hour to count towards your total of eight hours sleep. Um, so you wanted to be pretty much packing up and ready to go on that hour mark as opposed to maybe an hour and 20. You're, you're wasting 20 minutes and don't count towards your rest. So... We we had that in mind as well, but like we got pretty proficient at pitching the tent. Um, you know, we'd be in the tent within ten minutes. So from the time you had stopped, you know, we all had our like Stefan took one end, I took the other. And, you know, once we had it, uh, the, the skis and tied down, I was in the tent, um, getting the stove on. So by the time Stefan had the tent all um, properly secured, I had the water nearly boiled. So we were, we were quite quick that way. But I get what you're saying about the sleep. Um, you know, if you're only stopping for an hour, you're not really getting a chance to sleep. And that was our strategy anyway. We, you know, we didn't plan the sleeping until the third stop. But it's just that it took us so long to get to the second stop that we decided to, you know, to, to bank some rest at that stage. And plus two, it was whiteout conditions, so there was no point really trying to press on. We said we'd wait in the morning and give it two or three hours and, and at least try and press on in daylight. And inside a tent, what was your sleeping strategy did you have uh, term rests or, or what kind of a mat were you using in sleeping bag? Yeah, so on the when we were setting up the tent, we had um, basically a, a foil mat that we put out uh, on the whole tent surface. So that, that was the first layer. And then I had um, a thermo rest, um, one of extreme lights, it's one of those foldable ones, but it's super warm. You can actually feel the heat radiating off your back when you lie in it. So I had it. And then I had my proper big down sleep bag, which is down to minus 50. And, uh, yeah, I just took my boots off. I left everything else on. So you, you, you slept in your, you pretty much you made to get off your ski jacket or your outer layer. But I, I kept on all my, my layers underneath, socks and, and, and trousers and the whole lot. So it was just a mummy sleeping bag. And you just zipped right up. And we're pretty cozy in there. And plus, like, I would always take in the, 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 the boiled water 
and walked me into the sleeping bag and used it pretty much like a hot water bottle. Um, and it's still good to drink then when you, you know, an hour later. Um, so, yeah, sleeping, I never have problem sleeping in, in that scenario. I think you'd be that tired and you're just glad to get in there with elements. It's, it's nice to get, you know, snuggled up in your sleeping bag. You mentioned the sleeping. What about getting back out of the sleeping bag? Yeah, well, that's a different story. <laughs> um, I, I think that's a mind over matter thing. It's, it's like getting out of bed in the morning. You just got to get up and do it, you know. Um, plus, it's it's about being proficient because when you get out, you're instantly going to be cold. So you, you light your stove from within the sleeping bag. So straight away, you're heating in the tent. Um, so before you get out of the sleeping bag, the, the tent is warm. So you're not getting out into in a cold environment from your sleeping bag. And then before you leave the tent, you're fully booted up and suited again. So, you know, you're never exposing yourself to that real cold environment until you're ready for it. And what kind of a stove were you using? Yeah, it was a an MSR. Um, it was a, like a, a proper fuel stove. So we were, we were burning the, the, the fuel gas. So you, know, you can burn petrol in it if you need to. So Stefan had one that he basically he manipulated one himself inside a saucepan. So he had this really large, you can imagine a, a large saucepan as you might boil a, a large chicken in. And inside that he had the stove. So it was a really efficient heating system and that, that he had developed. And uh, it meant that when you put the pot inside to boil your water, that it didn't have any chance of tipping over inside the tent. If it did, it fell inside the, the inner pot, if you know what I mean. So, um, yeah, it, it, it also threw a good heat to the tent. So not only was it boiling the water, but it, it did actually warm the tent over time as well. That's exactly what I was asking, because I, in my head when you mentioned about lighting the stove inside the tent, and it can be tricky, like it's something that you have to know what you're doing. And safety mm. is always paramount in these situations. That So yeah, that sounds like a a good system. And the MSR stove is the one I use myself because they're, they're very, yeah. very versatile and you will get fuel for them anywhere. I've the very yeah. old one, the uh, Shaker Jet. I know what's a, yeah, I think it's a Shaker Jet it's called and it's a multi-fuel mm. stove. So it's well, well like, traveled. I, I tried, I tried using other, you know, gas-based stoves before but they just freeze up. Yeah, they freeze and, up, yeah. You know, you're, you're, yeah, the freeze up and, and, you know, it takes forever to boil. So you don't want to be in that scenario where your, your stove's not working, you're, you're snickered. And so, um, no, like the, it's a very safe system as well. So, you know, if, if you do happen to knock against it, it's not going to spill boiling water all over your tent or it's not going to set fire to it, you know. So it's, it's, a, it's a pretty good system to have. And did you suffer from any cold weather injuries over there? Uh, not so much, no. I mean, thankfully, this is where Stefan is really on, you know, in tune with things. I, that night's where we were going through kind of the, the stormy conditions. Um, I did get pretty cold, so much so that my you know my speech was getting slurred. Um, and purely my face was just you know, was was freezing up. And uh, from time to time, he would check. He would stop and check me, um, and just just check to make sure you know my cheeks or my nose wasn't getting uh, any sort of frostbite. Um, but again, like I was well prepared. I had the, the right right gear and, and equipment for that. So. Uh, no, I didn't experience anything. No, it, it, it wasn't that extreme cold where you're worried about you know your toes running, but your hands definitely did get cold if you had your gloves off for any any length of time at all. Moving on from this, do you do a bit of rock climbing? No, not really. No, um, just just a little bit here and there in holidays. But no, I wouldn't be um, I wouldn't be too into the rock climbing now. Just, mm. It's it's not really something that 
that's available here. Um, I know there is a couple of guys now locally who, who offer it, but um, growing up, it was never something that we had experience of. There's no climbing walls really nearby. So, um, but again, it's, it's something that I, I enjoy me when I go to Chamonix, just doing a little bit of it, you know, just with a guide. What did you do in Yosemite? Oh, just hiking, just hiking. Hi- yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Just, yeah, just hiking. So you're very well um, travelled and you've been to Morocco as well. Yeah, we, we did the trip to Morocco. That's, that's actually one that anybody could do, really, because it's, um, it's very accessible. I went to, we to climb Mount Tukal, um, so it's the highest peak in Northern Africa. Um, it was more just a, I went to my brother, just on a, it was more a, a holiday for the weekend. It was like a four-day trip. Um, so like everything, you try and cram in as much as you can. But yeah, great experience. I mean, it was my first time being to, to Morocco, and yeah, it's just it's another world, really. But um, yeah, we, we did the climb of Tube Cal. We just we, we we hiked up to the to the base on the, the first day, and then climbed early in the morning uh, to the summit, and right back down in the, 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 that evening. So it's it's something that you know you see tour guys offering it, and they're charging two thousand to do it. Um, like we probably did it on a budget of two or three hundred, really, and it's not hard to self navigate, really. So. It's, it's something that anybody with outdoors experience, uh, I think they could, it's well within their range, you know. I'm getting tired listening to you now at this stage, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to finish this up because we, we've gone over, <laughs> over the hour. And yeah, I'm, I'm, there's, there's actually too much to really get through. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I think somebody should really go along and check out your website to see the list of things that I haven't got around to uh, mentioning, so it's definitely worth having a, having a look at. And you're you're still you're you're young with regards to these kinds of events. What would it be right in saying you're probably thirty seven, thirty eight? Yeah, so thirty seven now next month. Yeah, yeah. So, so um, you've you've done a lot in a short space of time. Now, when I say a short space of time, like you haven't spread this out over thirty seven years. Like you've only been doing this the last. Eight, ten mm-hmm. years, is it maybe? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. So, ah, yeah. Look at it. Uh, you know what? It's, it's kind of it's my hobby as well as kind of you know just something that keeps me going. And I'm not one of these guys who's always looking for the next extreme thing. You know, uh, I like to have a challenge and go for it. Um, you know, I'm not claiming to be. You know, this is the first or this is the, the hardest thing ever. It's um, it's just things that I like to to, to aim for and, and to do. You know, um, and like down the line I've definitely have a few things in mind but like that you've got to fit in around fit in around life and, and finances and all that too so yeah well it certainly is a, a life less ordinary and it's kind of refreshing now to be talking to you and looking at the list of things that you've done because you know, I think social media has I suppose given people a, a voice and a platform people who haven't really done anything but they're claiming it all and yeah it's great to see this because until I actually went onto your website I didn't know half of this I was aware of who you were mm. especially when I when I found your name when I was checking what the record was for the county tops and uh, <laughs> right although it, it was it, I knew it was, it was very very impressive time but I wasn't impressed when I looked at it because I was going to go and use that's that out the window anyway uh, yeah. but you know there, there's no rules around the challenge, maybe I could could get a helicopter. Yeah, well, I think it has to be land based. I think it oh, does be, it? Uh, on on the surface of so it can mm. be boats, it can be can be trains or, or cars, but it, it, it must be land based. 
All right. There might be a loophole somewhere. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, I'll have to look for some other other angle. Yeah, yeah. No, look, I can remember when I did that how challenging it actually was, and the driving alone was quite was quite tough as you mentioned there, and then trying to plan the route from. Um, mm county to county and then getting to the base of each mountain were, were there any in particular that you might have found quite challenging or awkward <laughs> funny you should say that it's probably one of the easier ones um, the Monaghan High Peak is it Verna uh, or something like that um, it's it's not even a mountain it's just a it's just a bog an elevated bog and uh, I think that's the one that, that kind of causes the most havoc yeah um, I, I remember that we couldn't. We yeah. weren't sure about finding the top, and then I think when we did, we we did so much moving around. We had a well. I had a GPS. One of the, yeah. It was a, it was the Garmin Forerunner One Hundred One. So it was the first of the Forerunner. So that's how long ago it is since I did it. Yeah. And then a bit yeah. of mist came down, and we found it hard getting back to the car. But luckily enough, the Garmin has a back to start function, so we found a way back. Okay. And then when we were in Clare, I think we had trouble getting to the start point of where that mm-hmm. county top was. So they were two awkward ones. And then, of yeah, course, yeah, no, Sligo wasn't the easiest either. Yeah, they definitely, the, the, the second night out, there was a lot of heavy fog. And, um, yeah, the one in Sligo actually crossed more, which is up near the big mast. Yeah. Um, there's, there's two points in that. So the, there's one behind the mast and then there's another high point. And um, we had quite a lot of really finding the second high point, and it's actually on a cliff edge. There's a so if you overshoot things, you're you know it's it's pretty sheer on the other side. And there's in the guidebook by Kieran Grubbin, it, it actually warns you of that. Um, so it was quite an experience actually about two in the morning. But uh, no, in fairness, we got around most of them pretty stress free. Um, I know some guys came out to help us and joined in on, on, on some of the peaks, which was a great help having local knowledge. Um, so I mean that was something really enjoyed. Was a lot, a lot of people came out from the kind of Emirate community, the adventure racing side of things, and, and gave us a hand as well. So I mean, I presume that's allowed. <laughs> they were out actually checking up on you to make sure you were doing what you were supposed to be doing. <laughs> they weren't <laughs> just giving you a hand. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but um, I know it's a good, good challenge. I'd encourage anybody to do it. You know, it should it be over a summer or over the course of a year or whatever. It doesn't have to be in one go. Um, because exactly. Yes. It's time, it's time consuming and you can treat it as a yes, uh, I've had people contact me and they, they go on to maybe do three peaks in the weekend and then they go again a month time and do another two or three you know, so it's, it's a good way to see the country too yes and I think if you do it that way you get to remember it a bit more and you probably get to enjoy it as well because I forget a lot of the places that I've been because you're doing them in a hurry you're you're concerned about getting back before you've even got there for sure you're looking yeah, at doing it's a rush and uh yeah, you've got your head down the whole time, really. Um, so sometimes you don't, you don't look up and appreciate where you are. Yes, exactly. What advice would you give to someone who's maybe expressing an interest in adventure racing or multi-sport or ultra-trail? Somebody starting out. Yeah, starting out. Um, look at it. Everything's progressive, really, I think. Um, you know, there's lots of options there now. Um, the, the, the number of multi-sport adventure races out there and like there's there's one pretty much within everybody's range at this stage. Um, so yeah, like I would select something local and really start with. And and you know if it's your first event, 
like you, you've got to do it for the fun of it. Um, you know, if you're not enjoying it, you're not going to stick with it. So, you know, if you're not the kind of person who goes out regularly running, you know, you got to get involved with a group or something. So just for a bit of bit of support. But I know, like up here, we've got the what they call the war race, the Wild Atlantic Adventure Race, and like they actually do basically a couch to five k, but it's for adventure racing. So that you know they start out doing little bits of running and bits of biking, and then start combining everything. So I mean, if you're a complete beginner, that's the approach I'd be taking. Um, you know, body up with two or three people or somebody who actually has, has experience of it, and um, yeah, just to ease yourself in. You know, um, but most of all, enjoy it. I mean, one of the best races of the year for me is seeing the summit in Westport, and it's more for the for the crack of the weekend. Obviously, you take the race very serious, but there's a great after party and, you know, you get to know the people in the area as well and you see them year on year and it actually becomes a social side of it as well. So I think it's important that you keep the fun element and also the social element of it and, you know, the race and look after itself then. And Quest seem to put on uh, some great events as well. So I might put a, a link to a few of these events in the notes to go with this. So you have Westport Sea to Summit, Dingle Adventure Race, Quest, the Moxie Adventure Race, the Beast Adventure Race, Fear Mana, the the race mm-hmm. itself, uh, Gale Force. So there's quite a lot. So actually, I'll stick a f- uh, set a link to a few of those up. What watch do you use? Uh, so I'm currently using a Sunto Nine. Um, so yeah, I've always used Sunto. Um, it's kind of my first GPS watch was a Sunto. So I, I just I find them pretty easy to use and. There's there's enough gadgets on it without being too much, you know. So it's, it gives me everything everything I need, and the battery life is obviously really really good in this one. So I think I can track GPS for 120 odd hours. So it's kind of the main reason I went for the Cinto Nine. And earlier on, you mentioned your head torch. What kind of head torch do you use? I think it's very important to have a good torch at this time of the year. Yeah, um, I use a Tetzel Now Plus. Um, that's a it's basically Petzl's top of the range trail running one. Um, so yeah, it's it's good. It's got good battery life and it's got a super beam and it's it's reactive as well. So it it changes its light beam to kind of to the terrain that you're in. So if it if you're looking far afield, it it, it has a long beam. If the trail's up close to you, it, it reduces its beam and spreads it out. So it's it's really good. It's easy in the eyes and um, as I said, the battery life is good. Okay, well I think I'm gonna leave it at that. So. Thanks very much for your time, Sean, and I look forward to following what you get up to in the future. And for those listening in, if you've enjoyed this or any of the other podcasts, you might consider leaving a review or passing it on to someone. Until next time.